following sermon was recorded live at Foundation Church of Fredericksburg in downtown Fredericksburg, Virginia. For most of you, you know me. My name is John. I'm one of the pastors here at Foundation Church. Um, I just, uh, I'm grateful to be here this morning with you guys to go over God's word. Um, we're going to be taking a break from Jeremiah and we're going to be in 1 John this morning. So let's pray and ask God that he would speak to us in our hearts. Dear Lord, thank you so much for this time that you've given us to hear your word, to be changed by it, to be confronted by it to be encouraged by it. I pray that your spirit, Lord, would mold us, change us, sanctify us, and make us more like Christ. I pray that the meditations of my heart and my mind be acceptable to you, Lord, in your sight. O oh, Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Open up your Bibles this morning to 1 John chapter 2. We're going to be in verses 3 to 27 this morning. It is a long passage, but we will read it all because if anything, you will be edified by the reading of Scripture. And by this we know that we have come to know Him, if we keep His commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Beloved, I'm writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in the darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness, and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his namesake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who was from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride in possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world, and the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God 
abides forever. Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard, that Antichrist is coming. So now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are all not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you, not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is His promise that He made to us, eternal life. I am writing these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you, because, but the anointing that you receive from Him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as His anointing teaches you about everything, and is true, and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in Him. Brothers and sisters, I think it is good that I sort of recap from the last sermon in 1 John, since it was a few weeks ago. Um, in the first chapter of 1 John, John introduces his letter and sort of gives an overview of all the things that he's going to cover in his letter. He talks about um, the assurance that we can have as Christians. The reason why he needs to write for assurance is because of false teaching of the Docetus has entered into the congregation. The Docetus are a Gnostic sect that believe that all that is spiritual is good and all that is physical is or matter is not good. It's sinful. And so because of this belief, they believe that Jesus, the Christ, only appeared to have a physical body. But really he was just spirit with the appearance of the material. And so this caused much confusion. It entered the church pretty deeply, and it caused a divide within the church. And so John picks up his pen with a fatherly heart and writes to the Johannian churches with the purpose to assure the believer. In the last sermon, John assured his readers that Jesus did indeed become a man and that the church could have complete confidence in the gospel. Because Christians were led astray, and some even so-called Christians apostatized because of this docetus false teaching, many Christians lost assurance of their place in God's family. They began to doubt their trust in the gospel and whether or not they were actually saved. And so in our passage this morning, God wants to assure us of our salvation, and also warn us of Antichrist. The main idea of our sermon this morning is that God wants to assure us of our salvation and warn us of Antichrist. He wants to assure us of our salvation by giving us three marks that we can know that we know Jesus and have come into a saving relationship with Him and the Father. The reason we need this is because in this world who is governed by Satan, 
Christians can often doubt where they stand in the family of God because the evil one governs through deception. He is a liar. He is the father of all lies, and he's lied from the beginning. His lies are deep-rooted in earth's crust. Now, when we look around us, we see that Satan governs through the world through lies. If we look in the beginning of the Bible, we don't have to read too far into it before we notice that Satan is now deceiving and at work, deceiving Adam and Eve and separating humanity from the Father. His lies led the people in the Old Testament when God delivers them from slavery and they go to the other side of the Jordan River and they're ready to worship God. His lies enter and Aaron fashions a golden calf and tells Israel, this is the God who delivered you from Egypt. His lies also lead the people of Israel from freedom and God's land into captivity into Babylon for years and years and years. His lies led Peter to deny Christ and Judas to betray him. And his lies are still at work in the people of God today, attempting to deceive them. Satan is a liar because first he tempts you and gives you the promises of sin and promises you on something that will not be delivered, tempts you to sin. And once you sin, his lies continue in the accusation of those sins, that you can never be forgiven, that you fail too far from grace. His lies are at work against the church. And because of these lies, we need to be assured that we are a part of God's family and that that assurance is in our hearts. This morning, God will give us three marks that we've come to know Jesus and belong in the family of God. The three marks are, number one, they obey Jesus. Those who are born again obey Jesus. Those who are born again love the brethren. Number two. And number three, those who are in Christ, those who are born again, have overcome the evil one. John will also give us four marks of an antichrist so that we can identify them and not be led astray by them. The four marks of an antichrist are that they love the world, they leave the church, they deny Jesus is the Christ, and they are deceived and deceived by others. I want to start off with first explaining what the three marks of a Christian is not. The three marks, these three things, obeying Jesus, loving the brethren, overcoming the evil one, they're not what makes you a Christian. We know that salvation is by faith alone. We know that the only way to be saved and be united to Christ, it is only by faith in Christ alone. These three marks are not also what you need to become a super Christian. This is uh, to respond to Wesley's idea of perfectionism, that we could get to a point in our Christian life where we do not sin anymore. That is an error. Sanctification is a fruit of the Spirit. It is produced by God in us, flows out from us by His work. The only time that a Christian will reach 
pure perfectionism is the day that we are glorified, the day where we're in glory, either in death or in the return of Christ. But I want to also share what these three marks are. They are a work of God in our heart, and they are produced by God. It is the Spirit's ongoing work in our lives to transform us and make us into the image of Christ. It is the Spirit's ongoing work in us to produce obedience and love for each other. These things are not just inward. They're visible to the world. And so, for the three sneakerheads in this room, <laughs> I uh, created, uh, I want to give an illustration. You see, this whole sneakerhead world, like if you're into sneakers, maybe you're not, it's the first time you find out about, like there's actually people that will pay hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of dollars for a pair of shoes that retail is like 100 180 or $200. So I could explain all the ins and outs of all that and why the rationale behind that. But as a recovering sneakerhead, <laughs> <laughs> I, um, I just want to say that there's something about you know, having a grail that you've always wanted, a sneaker that you've always wanted, and lucking out on the sneaker app and getting them for retail. Because you know if you don't get them for retail, the resellers are coming. And those resellers will sell you a pair of shoes that's $200 for $400, $600, $800, $1,000. It's a weird world, I know. <laughs> but because sneakers are expensive, and there's also a cardinal sin in the sneaker community that you, thou shalt not wear fakes. <laughs> you don't want to pay that sort of high price for a fake shoe. And so you can either A, become really good at being able to tell the real from the fake, which is hard because there's a variety of shoes out there and it gets a little complicated. Or you could do go to StockX or eBay who will guarantee the authenticity of that sneaker. And they have professionals who will look at that sneaker, look at it in and out, pull out the tongue, pull out the soles, look at every single aspect of that sneaker and say, this shoe was made by Nike. And when they do that, they grab a tag, either a StockX tag, it's a removable tag, or an eBay tag, and they attach it to the lace loop of the sneaker, saying, you can purchase this sneaker with confidence that it is authentic, and that it is real. That tag doesn't make that sneaker any more made by Nike, but rather that tag is an indicator that the sneaker that you're holding in your hand is real, it's authentic. And so, this morning, John wants to give us, not sneaker tags, but marks, indications that we are truly born again. The first one is that we obey Jesus. Look at verses 3 to 6. It says, And by this, by this, we know that we've come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but doesn't keep his commandments, is a liar. One of the marks of a true Christian is that they obey Jesus. It is evidence that they've come to know him. You cannot call Jesus Savior and not call him Lord. Jesus is both Savior and Lord of the life of a true Christian. 
Christians who have come to know God and Christ will, number one, submit to the lordship of Jesus, and number two, imitate Christ. When we see here, submit to his lordships in verse 3 to 4, Christians have only one lord that they obey. That means that they have forsaken all other lords of their lives. When you came to Christ, before that, you worshipped control. You worshipped, you were, you worshipped money. You worshipped power. Whatever it was that was your Lord, it was forsaken. Whether that's the opinion of people, whatever it is, it was forsaken. And you submitted yourself to the loving arms of a Savior who is also your King. So that meant that when you transitioned from there to here, you submitted everything that came with you under the Lordship of Christ. Your traditions, your cultures, your work ethic, all of it is now ruled under the Lordship of Jesus. You look at your parenting, you say, Jesus, tell me what to do in my parenting. You look at your job and you say, Jesus, tell me what to do in my job. Help me to obey you in what I do and what I say. I want to also clarify that there's a difference between obedience and doing a bunch of things for Jesus, okay? Samuel warns Saul of this when Saul sacrifices animals to God in disobedience uh, to the way God established animal sacrifice to be. And Samuel says, is obedience, is sacrifice greater than obedience? We may take time out of our Sundays to come to church, we may avoid cussing. We may do a whole bunch of things that we would consider a sacrifice. But if it's not an obedience to Christ, if it's not from a heart of obedience to Christ, then your sacrifice is meaningless. As a matter of fact, Jesus warns in Matthew 7, 23, that we can do many things for Jesus, but if we do not obey him, we do not know him. And he does not know us. Matthew 7, 23, Jesus talks about that day where many Christians will come to him, so-called Christians, and say, Lord, Lord, did we not go to church? Did we not wear a suit and tie? Did we not cuss? Did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not do this X, Y, and Z for Jesus? And Jesus turns back, responds to them, and he says, depart from me, workers of lawlessness. I never knew you. They were people who did a bunch of stuff for Jesus, but did not obey Jesus. And so, true Christians who've been born again obey Jesus and submit to his lordship. The second thing that they do as they obey Jesus, in addition to submitting to his lordship, is that they imitate Jesus. The acronym WWJD, What Would Jesus Do?, is not a bad question, when the answer is guided and determined by God's word. It is important that when we are in certain situations that we don't know what to do, whether left or right, we think of what would Jesus do, and we let that, the answer to that be influenced and guided by God's word. Jesus commands his disciples to follow his examples. right? Jesus, in John 13, 13, he says, that he washed his disciples' feet, and he said, now go and imitate me. Go and do likewise, right? So 
Jesus loved the poor. Jesus loved the broken. Jesus healed the sick. Jesus spoke the truth. Jesus stood up for those who were downcast. All these things that we see Jesus model for us in his word should be the things that we seek to imitate in our day-to-day life. So Christians should be influenced and imitate Christ and Christ alone. Nothing else will influence us, should influence us. Bobby spoke about this last week, about the, the myth of neutrality, that there is no middle ground. If Jesus is not the one influencing your life, then something else is. Look and see what is influencing my life that is not Christ. Second thing is that, uh, second mark of a true Christian is that they love the brethren. Look at verses 7 through 11. It says that at the same time, it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away. Verse 9, whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in the darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. Christians who have been brought out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light will be marked by the love that they have for other Christians. Christians as a whole in the world don't have the greatest witness as far as how, we, how loving we are to unbelievers. But even more so, Christians within the church can often testify of how, loving, how unloving we are sometimes to one another. But this is not what should be the case in the, in the Christian church. A Christian who does not love other Christians does not have assurance that they are walking in the light according to 1 John. John will actually argue that they're walking in darkness. Sometimes we have often in the United States have allowed for the divisions that exist in our country and around the world to enter the church and divide us in many different ways, politically, racially, ethnically, economically, and these subtle things that we allow, that happens on in the world and how the different ways that people are divided have crept in the church oftentimes. And it's subtle, but it happens. Oftentimes we'll use good things like doctrine and the word of God as a reason to divide and hate other Christians. This should not be the case. A Christian hating another Christian is a contradiction. To be a Christian and to hate Christian and other Christians contradicts what you're claiming to be. And so John will argue for the exclusivity of love. Just like the absence of light is darkness, the absence of love is hate. John says it's either or. You either love your brothers or you hate them. There is no middle. And so I think it's important for us to define love. It is a term that often gets misunderstood, and it is something that, as a church, we should be on the same page as what love is. Love, according to John and his letter, is both actions and affections combined. You can say you love someone, but if you do not serve them, if you do not care for them, then your love is nothing. See, affections without action is sentimentalism, but action without affections. And ladies, that's the worst, right? On Valentine's Day, he does all the right things. Here you go, here's a card, here's a flower. 
There's no affection under that. There's no affection driving that. You don't want that. You don't want those actions, right? It's actions combined with affections. And so affections without actions is sentimentalism, and action without affection is nothing, according to Paul. Paul and 1 Corinthians chapter 13, 3, he talks about all these things that a Christian can do, but if they, have, if they do not have love, then they're nothing. And their love is nothing. One of the ways that foundation can be a light in the downtown Fredericksburg area to your neighbors, to your friends, is the way that we love one another. Jesus said, and this is, this is what Christ said, so listen closely. He said, they will know you, that you are my disciples, by the way you love one another. Foundation in the Christian church should be a one another type of people, a people that loves one another. The third mark of a true Christian is that they have overcome the evil one. So true Christians will obey Christ, love the brethren, and number three, overcome the evil one. John is listing three groups of people here. The children whose sins are forgiven in verses 12 through 14. The fathers who know Christ and the young men who've overcome the evil one. And these three things appear to be three different stages in human life. Right? Children, young men, and fathers. They don't include here young women or mothers. And the Greek words for that is masculine. So John is definitely writing to the whole church here. So what we notice here is that these three different groups of people are actually one group of people. It's a list. It's a reiteration of all the things that we are in Christ. This list of people isn't merely a list of different people groups, but instead it's a list of one group of people, which is the family of God. The family of God. The family of God is known for their sins being forgiven, a knowledge of God in Christ, and their victory over the evil one. If you are here this morning, you have overcome the evil one. Your status before God is no longer a defeated prisoner of Satan, but someone who has overcome the evil one. There will be days, brothers and sisters, where we will not feel like we've overcome the evil one. There will be days where we have felt like we failed time and time again, lashed out on the kids, were short-tempered with our spouse, just had rough days, and we will not feel like we have overcome the evil one. If anything, we will feel like the evil one has overcome us. But you have to understand this morning that your overcoming of the evil one isn't based on feelings. Your overcoming of the evil one is the fact that God has given you that status and it is a permanent status upon the believer's life. It is objectively true that the Christian here has overcome the evil one. This is a definitive statement made by God that says, you have overcome. The Christian can have assurance of his salvation because God has given us victory over Satan. How can we know that we've overcome the evil one? How can, we, how can God definitively say that? And it's because we receive this assurance because we've been united to Jesus. 
Our union with Jesus, with the one who truly had victory over the evil one, perfectly, he, had, he did not have a bad day, folks. There wasn't a single day where Jesus said, oh, man, Satan got me. He didn't. He perfectly obeyed God. He perfectly loved his brothers and sisters to the point where he laid his life down for them. And he perfectly overcame the evil one, even when it appeared on that dark and cloudy day that the evil one had victory. And so Christ has overcome Satan once and for all. And if you're a Christian this morning, your relationship with Christ is one of union. You have been united to Jesus. There is nothing on earth that can separate you from this union with Christ. There is no demon there is no angel, there is no false teacher, there is no power in this world that can separate you from the union that you have now in Christ. And because he overcame the evil one, you also have overcome the evil one. And so, where does your assurance come from? When you look down and ask yourself, how do I know I'm a Christian? I don't know what the basis of your assurance is this morning. If the basis of your assurance did not include these three things, then you may be self-deceived. You may come every Sunday. You may have grown up in a Christian home and gone to church as long as you can remember. You may tithe. You may cuss. You may only listen to Christian contemporary music. But if your life is not marked by obedience to Jesus, love for other Christians, and, overcome, and a continual overcoming of the evil one, then you may be self-deceived. You may be here and see some of those marks of being a Christian. You may see a little bit of obedience. You may see a little bit of love for brethren, but not to the degree that you would like to see. And that's okay. Do you have a desire to see those things grow in your life? Do you long for it? Do you lament in those areas where you are falling short and ask God for gospel-centered, spirit-filled growth? If you do not see these marks of a true Christian to the degree that you would like, ask the Lord for growth. John gives us three marks of being a true Christian. And again, these marks are not the things you need to do to become a Christian, but rather they flow from our union with Christ and our evidences of our true faith. He will also give us four marks of an antichrist. Verses 15 through 27, the antichrist John describes here as the forerunner for the antichrist. They are opposed to the kingdom of God. Just like when John the Baptist came, and people confused him for the Christ. They asked him, are you the Christ? Who are you? The Antichrist that John is describing here are forerunners to the Antichrist. And so how can we spot them? We can spot them by their love for the world. Number one, one of the marks of an Antichrist is that they love the world. Here in John's admonition to Christians, to not love the world <clears throat> indicates to us that those who are antichrist love the world. Their love for the world is hatred for God, as James 4.4 4 states. What is the world? 
It is a system of spirit. It is a system or spirit on earth that is in rebellion against God. It is a system or spirit on earth that is in rebellion against God. You watch TV, you look at a commercial, you go on your Facebook timeline or Twitter timeline, you will see a system or a spirit of earth that is in rebellion against God. Again, no neutrality. We are either in the world or we're in Christ. So the Antichrist love the world because they are allied to the rebellion of the world against God. They look at the world and says, hey, me too. Hey, yeah, I agree with that. Let's do that. Let's do our own thing. And so the Antichrist love the world because they are allied to the rebellion of the world against God. And number three, their love for God and love for the world cannot coexist in the Christian. Nothing is neutral. Again, love for God and love for the world cannot coexist in not only the Christian, but in any heart. This is why you see so many walk away from the faith. In their heart, there is a battle going on between love for the world and love for God. But it's God doesn't give room for that. You will eventually choose what you truly love. That love will eventually overcome you. You will either love God or love the world. And John wants to show us here the folly of loving the world. He says it's foolish for two reasons. Number one, the world is temporal. Have you ever been so hungry that you're like, man, I could eat a good chip- I'm a Chipotle guy. I could eat a good Chipotle bowl right now. Man, I can't wait. I'm going to put half steak, half chicken, rice, sour cream. Like, I could just name it right now because... I'm hungry, so we're probably going to eat Chipotle after church. (laughs) But have you ever been so hungry, and then you get to that place, and you eat your food, you're not hungry anymore, and then we're back to our task at hand. You forgot that you were that hungry in the first place. Or have you ever been excited about a purchase of a vehicle? Man, I can't wait till I get this car. Man, when I'm driving this thing, I'm going to be like, whatever. You get so excited about a car. You buy the car, weeks go by. It's just the car you drive now. The joys of this world, the pride and possessions, the lust of the eyes, they're all temporal things. They're fickle. They come and they go. And so John is saying to put your stock, to put your hope in the temporal things of this life is foolishness because it's not eternal. It's not going to last. And so John gives another reason why the loving the world is foolish. It's because God is eternal. You put God and the world side by side and the beauty and riches of Christ and his eternal weight and glory is going to far exceed any temporal pleasure that you can have in this world. John is arguing that God is better and those who love God, those who do his will, those who are in him will also dwell for all eternity with him. But those who love the world and choose to put their affections in the temporal They will also be temporal. Their pleasures, their joys, all of that will pass away. The only thing eternal for them will be the wrath of God and hell. The second mark of an antichrist is that they leave the church. Their love for the world will cause antichrist, those who are antichrist in the church, to depart it and go reside where they really belong. 
where they really want to be. If home is where the heart is for the Antichrist who is in the church, they'll go to the world. That's their home. And so Antichrist cannot be in the church for long. And so John is arguing that God is making it plain to us where people truly stand when they leave the church and go into the world, when they apostatize. He's making it plain for us because for us, it's not always as plain. We look at each other here in this room, and for the most part, we say, yeah, these are Christians. They're all Christians here. But we don't know the inner struggles of each other's heart. We don't know all the things that are going on in there and the battle that is within. And so John is saying that their departure is to make it plain to us that they are not of us in verses 18 through 19. So their departure is actually a revelation of what was in their heart all along. You see, family, this is why church membership is so important to us here at Foundation. This is why church membership and church discipline is very important because in church membership, we're hearing your testimony, we're hearing uh, how you came to Christ and your faith and what you believe about Christ and the gospel, and we're then saying, yes, we can affirm that this person is truly a brother and sister in Christ. We've got to know them. We've got to hear their testimony. We've got to hear what they believe of Christ. And then church discipline is also important because it is saying we can no longer affirm that you believe everything that you said originally that you believe. Church discipline is important because it is us saying we can no longer affirm these things to be real in your life. This is why we should take church membership and church discipline important because it is the way in which we guard our church from antichrist. Number three, they deny Jesus is the Christ. What does it mean that Jesus is the Christ, right? It means that he is the anointed one sent from God to save his people from their sins. It means God commissioned the eternal son of God to come to earth, become man, dwell among us, and to save us from our sins. And he put the Holy Spirit on Christ. He was anointed by the Holy Spirit. The Spirit was on him in order to fulfill the task that God sent him to do. The Docetus denied that Jesus, the man, could ever be the Christ because they believe that all things that are material are tainted. And so only the, only the spiritual could be good or pure. Because they were operating off wrong premises, promises, they arrived to a false Christ. One who has only spirit but is not man. This is why Christology is very important. This isn't a study of crystals. <laughs> Christology is the study or doctrine of Christ. It is important that we as Christians should be informed on what our Christology is and let that be informed by the Word of God. And we should be on guard of anything that contradicts the word of God on who Christ is. We should examine what is spoken of Christ from the pulpit. When you hear anybody come up to this pulpit and they start speaking about Jesus, hear closely what they are saying. Hear closely what they are saying because we want to make sure that what is coming out of our mouths is coming from the word of God. But we shouldn't only 
be on guard in the pulpit and in the church. But we should be on guard of the underlying beliefs that we may have that contradict who Christ is. We can sometimes inform our ideas of Christ, not from the word, but from a TV show, from books that teach wrong things of Christ, from music. What we listen to, what we read, what we hear, is important that we discern whether the true Christ is being proclaimed to us or not. As Christians, we should also avoid having a lopsided view of Christ. Maybe we can emphasize too much on him being a conquering king and not so much on him being a humble servant. Maybe we can overemphasize on how direct Jesus was with the Pharisees and how, how he spoke truth and just went ham and all these other things and then minimize that Jesus was tender. He was gentle and lowly at heart. We should be careful to have a lopsided view of Christ because who we see Christ to be will ultimately flow out of who we imitate him to be. If we see him as a conquering king but not a humble servant, it may lead us to be dictators in our jobs as bosses or husbands or fathers. If we see him to be direct and tell her how it is all the time, but not as tender and gentle and lowly, then we can also be abrasive with the way that we communicate truth to other people. So Christians, we should be on guard from having a lopsided view of Christ because we will ultimately imitate who we see Christ to be. And we will also relate with him in that way. If we see him as somebody who forgives us our sins but is distant from us, far off, yeah, I forgive you, then when we sin, we won't run to the throne of grace for forgiveness and hold on to him and ask him, have mercy on me. Rather, we will view him as someone that has his nose held up at us. It is important because it will control how we relate to Jesus. So Christians, we should be on guard on having a lopsided view of Christ. Again, Christology is important, the doctrine of Christ. We should guard against creating a false Jesus in our heart. And finally, the final marker of a false teacher, of an antichrist, is that they are deceived and they deceive others. They are deceived by the spirit of the Antichrist who has deceived them into thinking that the temporal pleasures of this world is better than the eternal joy of knowing the Son and having the Father. They are convinced of it. That's all they see. The prince of this world has blinded their eyes, has darkened their hearts so that they cannot see Christ. They are so convinced of this lie that that lie has, is truth for them. That is what they interpret to be the truth. And so they operate and live their lives that way. And because they believe that to be the truth, that's all that flows out of them. And so they deceive others around them. Lying lips flow from a deceived and lying heart. Their lies flow from their union to the spirit of lies. It flows from there. Just as Christians are filled with the spirit of truth, and true Christians can never go into apostasy because they've been united with Christ, 
false teachers are united with the spirit of the Antichrist. And so just like all these things for Christians who have been united with Christ flows from them, in the same way, all the lies, all the deceptions flow from those who've been united with the spirit of the Antichrist. These four marks of an Antichrist help us identify them and their lies and guard us from being led astray, guard us from being, having a lopsided view of Christ, guard us from falling into sin and believing false things of Christ. So I want to give a couple words of application for our end. Number one, ask God to reveal to you the areas in your life where you need to grow. Ask Him that He will produce in your life fruits of grace. Check me, Lord. Look in my heart. What do you see? Reveal to me the things that I'm blinded by that I could be easily deceived of and produce in me fruits of grace. Second word of application is proclaim the true Christ. Make the true Christ known. It is important that the true Christ is made known to the world around us by our words and our deeds. We should proclaim the true Christ to our neighbors, to our friends, to our family, that the true Christ would be known. Number three, grow in your knowledge of the true Christ. It could be that the lack of growth in these areas stem from ignorance of knowing who Christ is. Paul, that was Paul's desire in his letter. It was in his letters. It was that we would come to a knowledge, a deep knowledge, the depths and the heights of God's love that He has for us in Christ. In Christ, we should grow in our knowledge of the true Christ, of all that He is and all that He has done. The lack of growth in these areas could be a sign that you are not growing in your knowledge of the true Christ. And finally, look to Christ and faith. Let Him be the assurance of your salvation. See how He obeyed the commands of the Father perfectly. See how He loved His brothers and sisters by laying His life down to them, for them. And see how He overcame the evil one. Let Him be your ultimate assurance and let that truth change the way you live your life. Let's pray. All sermons are released under a Creative Commons, non-commercial, no derivative 3.0 license. If you would like to learn more or listen to past sermons, Thank you. please visit us at foundationfxbg.com.